I was going to be preaching this morning on the name of Jesus, to be honest with you. I've got it here in the back of my notes, and I had to change it in the middle of the week because the Lord had other plans, and it's still going to go along with everything that has been sung. I don't know how long I'm going to hang on to my notes. To be honest with you, this is something that the Lord has just birthed in my spirit. I can't even put it hardly into words. It's just there. It's, a, it's something God has dealt with me about as a pastor and we're going to be talking about an experience that I had this week, and then we're going to be letting the Lord, Lord have his way. Just the Lord teach. There'll be a little bit of building a sermon here, so just hang with me. Some of you might get lost. You think, where in the world is he going with this? It's not going to be normal, but just hang with me. Our story is a well-known story in Scripture known as the Mount of Transfiguration, which all of you know. And this is when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he brings them on a high mountain, and he begins to transfigure before them. How many would you like to be in that account? Amen? And even though we do not know exactly what mountain it was, and history reveals the exact location is actually unknown. I tried to find out what the name of the mountain was, yet it's still referred to as the Mountain of Transfiguration due to the experience that happened in all the different kinds of writings. And verse Verse 1 and 2 says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him, and he was transfigured before them. And Jesus' face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Verse 3 reveals to us that Moses and Elijah appeared on the mountain also, talking with Jesus. And here we see law and grace is revealed in symbolism when it comes to the glory of God. Moses is the giver of the law, we know that. And he had experience with God's glory when God given him the Ten Commandments upon Mount Sinai. Almost all of us know that story. When we think of Moses going up on Mount Sinai, we really only think of the two occasions that deal with God giving him the law or the Ten Commandments upon tablets. We think of the time when God sends Moses back down off of the mountain because the children of Israel had made unto themselves a golden calf and they was actually worshiping it. And God was so mad at what he saw them do doing that according to Exodus 32 and 10, that God literally wanted to consume them, that God wanted to destroy them. But according to Exodus 32 and 11, Moses begins to seek the Lord on behalf of the children of Israel, and he intercedes, and he reminds God of his promises toward them. He said, hold it, you can't destroy them. You've got an everlasting covenant with them. You promised Abraham. And Moses begins Excuse me. Moses begins to intercede like that. And it and he begins to let them know, let God know, God, you've got these promises. Thank you, John. And you you came back upon your promises. And so God begins to hear the voice and the prayer of Moses. It is due to Moses' intercession and him standing in the gap that God spares the nation of Israel. Can you give the Lord praise for that? That is the power of prayer. And I want to tell you something, folks. We don't understand why everything's going on negative that's going on in our land. We don't even understand why everything's negative that's going on in right here. But I want to tell you something. Think about what it would be like if we were not praying. I want to tell you our prayers is pushing back more than what you can ever even imagine. We have no idea of the powers of darkness that we're pushing back. You have no idea how families are blessed and how families are touched and how families are prospering just as a result of this church being where it's at. You take pilots of praise off of this hill as if it never existed and you would see a shift of atmosphere over this whole town. We are making a difference. We are pushing back the forces of darkness. There is liberty in this place because there is a church people that know how to pray. Can I have an amen? Glory to be to God. We don't understand everything, why everything ain't falling into place, but there's more falling into place than what you can ever even imagine. The Bible actually reveals to us in verse 31 and 32, and Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. In other words, Moses gets to interceding to the point that he says, God, I know what they've done. I understand that they made themselves gods of gold. I understand that they're worshiping these gods of gold, that they're caught up in idolatry, but forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, then blot my name out of the Lamb's book of life as well. That's how much he loved the children. Aren't you glad for good leaders that love the flock of God and they intercede and they pray? Aren't you thankful for the intercessors of the church? There's more going on in the life of the church because intercessors are praying 
praying. Those of you that are praying, be not weary and well-doing. You're fixing to see one of the greatest explosions of God's presence and God's power that you've ever seen in your life. Keep praying. Keep praying. You'll reap. Don't faint. You'll reap if you faint not. Uh, I want to tell you, I just want to encourage you because God is about to do something. As Moses comes down off the mountain, Exodus 32 and 19, it says, and it came to pass as soon as he came down to the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing and Moses' anger waxed hot and he cast the tablets out of his hands and he breaks them beneath the mount. And then verse 20 says, and he took the calf which they had made, he burned it in fire, in other words, he melted it, he grounded it in power and he strode it across the water and he made the children of Israel drink of that water. The very thing that he would not allow God doing, seeing their sin from afar off when he's up on the mountain, Moses himself actually done when he's seen the full folly of the sin by coming close to it. He made them partake of their own God. He took of the gold, he melted it down, he put it across the water to cool it off. Then he made them drink the water. And the Bible says there were about 3,000 Israel killed that day. 3,000 of them died because of the sin of idolatry. And let me tell you, there's another little thing here that we could get into. Gold will kill you if you ain't careful. The materialism of this world will kill you if you're not careful. They'll choke you and cause you to become unfruitful. As Moses came back down off the mount and their sin was seen, the Bible says that he takes the Ten Commandments and he breaks them. And saying in symbolic action, you have broken the law of God. Moses goes back up on the mountain again to hear from God and it is there he receives again the, the law, hewn in stones again. God makes new tables of stone. Exodus 34 verse 4 and 5 says that. And then Moses comes back down off the out and verse 5 says and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord which we'll talk about a little bit later when Moses brings them back the Bible says that his face did shine like the sun and Moses had to wear a veil over his face to hide the glory of God now think about it here's Moses going up there the second time getting the getting the law again because the children of Israel broke it he got mad he broke the stones God says come back up here and God with the finger of God hewed out the stone and wrote the Ten Commandments upon stone and gave it to him. And he comes down and his face is shining so bright that they have to veil him. Oh, God, send us your glory. I say, oh, God, send us your glory. Are you ready for it? Somebody ready for the glory of God? Let me see if you're ready for the glory of God. Oh, yes. Oh, God, send your glory. Send your glory. Breathe on us, God. And let's go back to our text just for a few minutes. We're going to be bouncing back and forth. Let's go back to our text in Matthew of the Mount Transfiguration just for a minute because I'm building this sermon. Not only was Moses there with Jesus representing law, but there was also Elijah there representing grace, the New Testament saints. He represents grace because he's a symbol of the pre-bodily rapture of the church. Elijah never tasted death. He was caught up in a whirlwind. He too got to see the glory of God, but it was different than that of Moses. He got to see it in heaven. Can I have an amen? So we see that we know how that Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire in a whirlwind and God sent him up there and he never died, but there he is on the Mount Transfiguration. So you know I have, we have now, so now we have law and grace and the symbols appearing with Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration. Something very real and powerful happened to me this week that has never happened in this kind of a way before. It was there in the late hours of Monday night, February the 6th, 2023, and in the early mornings of Tuesday, February the 7th, that God began to give visit with me, and God began to deal with me in a vision and in a dream. And I had a you know, I've had very little of those kinds of experiences happen to me in the 40 years of ministry. I can count the visions I've had on one hand, the dreams that was significant that I thought it was God, probably on one hand as well. But this was so real, so powerful, and so revealing. I was caught up in this dream, and I actually was half asleep and was half awake. Have you ever been like that? And I knew that God was speaking to me. As I dreamed, I even woke up to use the restroom at one point, and the dream immediately turned into a vision. I got up out of bed and the dream stopped and I started walking and the vision went right before me. And when I returned back to the bedroom and I laid back down in bed, I went right back to sleep and that vision turned right back into the dream and I dreamed this thing for hours. And I'm not even going to have time to even give you just but a little bit of it. But I want to tell you it's powerful. It's about to happen. You better get ready. You better put your seatbelt on because God is a war walking in the land to and fro seeking 
and how he may be strong on our behalf. I'm here to tell you, God's looking for a remnant. God's in search of a people that will love him and that will honor him and that will live holy before him. And God is about to connect with his church in a way that we've never seen him connect before. If you believe it, stand to your feet and give him praise. I dreamt that I was at a huge church conference at a big university. Only thing I knew it was a Christian university. The place and the name was unknown to me. All I knew was it was supposed to be one of the best, cutting edge, relevant, up-to-date conferences that there was. And even though I didn't have a list of names, yet I knew this place was full of the top leaders, the pastors, and the church educators and executives doing the teaching and doing the training, doing the discipleship, and doing, doing the, 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 that kind of a thing in the classes. So that there was an effort of the body to try to disciple. And right now, we're seeing discipleship come back to the table. That we're seeing the churches understand that if we don't disciple our people, they're going to be lost. Can I have an Amen. In the dream, even though I did not see, but, but two of the people in the palace, the, I knew that we had several van loads of people there. I knew that they were scattered in the various classrooms and the various teachings and sanctuaries that they had. And I knew that most of our top leadership was there, staff and volunteer staff alike, along with ministers and a bunch of you laity was there. The dream started by me coming out of the session into a huge hallway that was about the size of our foyer. That was the hallway. And, and uh, it was full of people, hundreds of people. They were coming and they were going and they were pushing and they were shoving. And I walked out of this hallway that led me to this big, huge room, much, much, much bigger, three or four or five times bigger than this sanctuary. And there was hallways flowing in and out of this room. It was like that this room was a hub to all the other rooms of the church. It was a big place where everybody kind of funneled in and kind of met. This room was more like a, a big cafeteria. It had huge, huge round tables where 16 or 20 people could sit at one table at a time. It was, it was a big place and everyone funneled into it. It had tables, it had vending machines, it had a bookstore in it, had internet stations for you to plug into and do your study in. It was just a marvelous room, a beautiful room. And the room was packed with people, hundreds if not thousands of people. And we we were between sessions and I was, we were waiting to go to the next sessions as they would begin. There was like a 15 minute break. As I started walking through this room to find a place to sit while I waited for the rest of the group to, to get together so that we could go over our assignments to see where everybody was going. Our, our, our deal was, and I knew it in my spirit, was that we would all meet up and then we would give an assignment. You go to this class, you go to that class, you go to that class, and I'll go to this class. Everybody was going to go to the specialized classes that fit their ministry. If there was a youth ministry there, then Zach would have went to it. And if it was children's ministry, Mike would have went to it. If it was nursery ministry, Sister Woods would have went to it. On and on and on. Whatever fits you, that's what we were doing. So I went there and going to sit down at a table to wait. I walked up to the table and I saw a young man actually fondling or having inappropriate touch with a young lady. Right there in the open, I was stunned. I could not believe what I saw. As I looked at the table, there was also two young girls there and they were intense in prayer and they were praying and they were interceding. There was another small group at this same table of about five, six, seven kids, something like that and they were just socializing and they were talking and they were laughing and, and there was nothing, they were laughing as if nothing was wrong. And as I looked at these kids, I said to myself, do you not see what is happening at your table? It was so open, it was so obvious, and yet you could not help but see it. And then I asked myself, why in the world would these kids be at this table and ignore what's going on as if it's not happening? I don't understand. I went to a next table, I said, I'm getting away from this, and there I met two girls kissing, making out. And again, I was stunned. I thought, what in the world is taking place? 
I looked and right beside them were four boys. They were engulfed in Bible study, talking about scripture, learning the scripture, dissecting the scripture. They were really seeking after God with their whole heart. And right there at that same table again, there were also a group of people, about five, six, seven people again, that was socializing. And they were saying, isn't this great? Everybody's just loving everybody. What a wonderful conference. And again, I thought, do you not see what's taking place right here at your table, right in front of your eyes? Do you not see what these two girls are doing right here? And I was just so frustrated. And my righteous indignation was getting up. I went to another table, and there was a group of boys sitting on each other's lap, doing and saying disgusting things. I can't even tell you what they've done. Their vulgarity was so vile, and their actions were so filthy that I could not believe my eyes that this was going on. I turned. There was a group of kids at that same table worshiping God. They had an old uh, guitar and they were sitting there plugging it and them kids was ignoring what was going on. They were totally lost within themselves. They were just worshiping and loving the Lord. And with them at the same table, there was another group of people socializing. This time there was about eight to ten of them and they were drinking beer and they were laughing and they were saying, don't you like coming to a place where you're not condemned and everybody respects everybody and everybody gets along. Oh, it's so great. It's like heaven here. And again, I could not understand. I was sitting here thinking, do you not see what's going on? I went to another table only to find kids smoking weed, passing it around to the other kids. And again, at the same table, I seen a Christian group talking about their last session, how good it was. That seemed to, They were on mark. Seemed like they were spiritual. And there again was also another group of kids socializing, talking about the party that they had last week, and they were making plans about what they were going to do at the party this coming week when they got home from the conference. I thought to myself again, what are you guys doing, you young Christians at a table where people are smoking weed and people are party life where they're talking about the next party. How can you do that? Why can't you come out from among them? I went from table to table to table and this was same experience throughout this whole big room. And finally, I walked up into a corner and there was a round table that would seat about 20 and there was about 30 people and they were crowded into it and all of them were worshiping God and all of them were turned on to Jesus Christ and a glow was upon that table. There was such a presence. There was such a glow of the presence of God. And I thought, oh, these kids has got it together. These kids know what this means. Folks, you know how bad society has become when people have lost their innocence to sin? You know that things have become bad when one no longer is embarrassed at sin anymore, but it's become a normal behavior of society that you just look over and say, oh, that kind of lifestyle is normal. That's what we live in. When we no longer sin. It's just considered and when it's considered normal and we become numb to it, society has become dark. Can I have an amen? The next thing I know, I look up and I see two of our older women in the church flowing out, of, out from the hallway into this big room. And when I seen them, I thought, oh no. I immediately started running my way through the crowd, pushing and shoving as fast as I get to get to these two older ladies. I could point them out. They're here this morning. And when I arrived, I put them back into the hallway. I just started, come on, girls. And I put them in the hallway, and I said, you stay here, and I'll find the rest, and we'll, we'll take an early lunch or something. It was an excuse. I knew that these two elderly women had never been to a conference before in their life. they just come out of the class, and they were so excited, and they were pumped up. And here's the pastor pushing them into a hallway. Why? Because I wanted to protect them from what was inside that room. And I wanted to protect the image of the church. And I wanted to really just, just, just say that this ain't who we are. This ain't what we represent at the palace. I don't want you to get that idea by thinking I knew that this kind of stuff was going on. And all of a sudden, the Lord spoke to me and said, you got to protect these older ladies because they have a standard that no longer exists in the earth. My heart sunk. I began to weep. All of a sudden, as I was going through this crowd, seeing the mixture, the blend of light and darkness, spirit and flesh, the power of deception was over that atmosphere. My heart sank for the future of our kids, for the future of our grandkids, and for the future of our great-grandkids. And all of a sudden, this crowd, though not representing the 
palace necessarily. All of a sudden, though, it became my congregation, my obligation, my responsibility because I was a preacher of righteousness. I thought to myself, how can I let this go on knowing I'm called to preach and I see it before my, and they're lost and they're dying, they're going to hell and no one's telling them. I've seen the deception of the culture controlling the people, manipulating the people. You could see it. It was on their faces. The spirit of worldliness was thick and no one wanted to stand up against them and teach them the truth and they were lost. And though they were at a conference, yet people were afraid to stand up and verbalize their position in Christ. They just wanted to ignore them. As just, if that's what they want to do, let them do it. And remember, we're at a Christian university. Can I have an amen? I've seen the big lie. Think we can all just get along. That was the main thing. We can all just get along. We can all fit in together. There's a place for us all. Sounds so pretty and sweet, doesn't it? I've seen the deceptive words. We can love everybody. And those that don't, you know, they really don't belong here if they're going to be a hate group. And even though the Christian does love everybody, let me say every, those of us that are Christian, we love everybody. But the definition of this culture was to love us is to accept us as we are. Come on, somebody. The culture that was formed made people numb and clueless to an orderly society where morality and common sense rule and where rule in, a, in an orderly fashion that is decent and right. As I looked at this mass of people, I then realized that God was showing me something. This was the normal church congregations of the world put together. And the Lord spoke to me and said, these are the ones that gather before my throne every Sunday. This is my regular crowd, God says. Think how much God must feel. Sin is only begotten son where he went and died and bled on the cross and was whipped and beaten beyond recognition for the sins of humanity. Gave his best. And this is how he's treated on Sunday mornings to the congregations around the world. This is what gathers before him as he looks down off of his balcony and off of his throne. Each congregation has these very components sitting in their pew every single Sunday morning. I thought to myself, because now I become the pastor of this group, how can I have vision? How can I give direction? How can I lead? How can I instruct a group of people that all have different ideas about the reality of truth? What can I do, Lord? How can we be one? How can we be unified? How can we be together without the sanctification of the spirit that sets us apart? How, Lord? You know, the real Christian struggle is in, the, in our world today is not our belief as much as it is in us allowing ourselves to be set apart from the world because so much of the people, they want to belong. They want to fit in. They want to be successful. They want to have friends. They, they don't want to be some outcast that, that, that goes through life without any kind of social environment that, 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 that makes them feel wanted and needed and accepted. But the biggest lie of the enemy is, is you can't be a, a, you can't be popular, you can't be successful, and you can't be accepted as long as you're a Christian. That's a lie. I was thinking, how can we advance? How can we go forward? How can we be overcomers if we don't believe that there isn't anything to overcome by accepting the world's philosophies and the human behavior and the lifestyles of this world? All reality of truth is walked out the door in our culture and people are believing the charming wind of the doctrines of the world. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 4.14 that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Timothy was told by Paul to watch out for false doctrine and uh, doctrines of devils. 
And the New Living Translation says it this way, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown apart by every wind of new teaching and we will not be influenced where people try to trick us with lies that is so clever that they sound like that they are truth. They sound so truthful. It's like, you know, the biggest problem isn't a manifestation of a demon. The biggest threat that we have is a demon that's manifested as an angel of light that has an appearance of compassion. If you'll listen to the four left's message, it's all about, oh, compassion, packed with lies and deception, but it's all about caring and love and compassion. Come on. There is not only the world's teaching and doctrines and philosophies, but most of our temptation comes in the area of influence. People that seem to have their lifestyles together. They live these happy medium lives where they kind of straddle the fence. One foot's over into the world, one foot's over into the church when it comes to convictions. It's like the Christian man that is told, and I've been told this on my job before, you'll never get a promotion here if you don't go to the company's parties. So what happened to one of my friends, that young man, he was told that. He went to the parties. And the next thing is if you're going to get the promotion, you got to fit in. But to fit in, men, if you don't like to drink, just act like it because everybody else is doing it. To fit in means you got to participate. Come on. If you don't like the party scene, just act like it. But if you're going to get the promotion, you have to fit in. You have to participate. That's the biggest lie of the enemy that there is. Then fit in goes farther as you go along. It's to go out on your wife. Everybody else is doing it. Come on. It's to have an open marriage where you understand each other. It's happening all over the place. Fit in is never enough. And then all of a sudden, you're never at home. You're never with your children. Why? Well, Monday night, you're at the country club. Tuesday night, you're at the woman's out, ladies' night. And Thursday night, the man's out when the men's night. And Saturday night, they're at the party night. And it just goes on and on and on and on until before long, you become so consumed by the world because you're wanting to fit in. The excuse is, well, I don't have to. I have to do what I do in order to keep my job and be successful. I'm gonna, if I'm going to be successful, then I have to do these things because these are the places of my contact contacts than sell to somebody else. Amen? Now hold on, hang with me, we're gonna get better. This is when success comes by the way of image and not substance. But always remember, everything built on image is on sinking sand, but everything that's built upon truth is on solid foundation. The real question that every single one of you gotta answer yourself today as a Christian, do I believe in Jesus Christ or do I not? And if I do, do I really believe he'll take care of me? And will he not give me my heart's desire? Will he not prosper me? Will he will not bless me? Come on. Will it not be a happy life, abundant life in Jesus Christ? That's the question you gotta ask. Is when is Jesus not enough? Amen? The spirit of the age and the spirit of the world is all over this generation because they're absent from truth, true reality of conviction of the truth that lies in Scripture. And there's a reason for it. Let's get back into our text. Let's look at the three characteristics on the Mount, three characters on the Mount of Transfiguration for a moment. We have Moses, who has a counterpart, Aaron. We know Aaron was one that God chose to help Moses lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. The first time that we see Moses going up on Mount Sinai is in Exodus chapter 19, verse 2 through 7. His first ascent was on the first day, the third month after they left Egypt. 90 days after they left Egypt, he's going up on top of the Mount. And we think of Moses only going twice up to the mountain, folks, to get the commandments, to bring them down, to break them, then to go back up and get the commandments again. But actually, Moses went up that mountain seven or eight times. And you have to read through it in order to understand that. Moses hears the Ten Commandments. Or, uh, he hears the Ten Commandments the first time he goes up before they're ever even put upon stone. And he's supposed to be teaching them even though that he don't have them on stone at that point. Moses, on his first time down from the mountain, was to go and sanctify the people, have them wash their clothes, make certain preparations, because God was going to come down on the third day and to speak to the children of Israel. They were told not to touch the mountain lest they die. 
To make a long story short, the people became scared to death to hear from God. They saw the thundering, the lightning, the smoke, the fire, the vapors, for the top of the mountain was lit up like a furnace. The earth did quake and the whole mountain began to be moved. They heard the voice of the trumpet with an exceedingly great loud noise. They ended up saying, let Moses go up into the exceedingly darkness upon the mountain and hear from God and then let Moses come down and tell us what God said. That's the problem that we have. That's the first mistake that the children of Israel have is they don't want to hear from God directly. They want to get the interpretation from somebody else. And there's where folly begins to set in, that we begin to believe certain things not because God literally says it, but because somebody said that God said. Those who don't know the word, they're going to be deceived in these last days. Amen. The serpent used the word of God against Steve. I noticed something very odd that I never caught before in the book of Exodus 19, 24. It's going to be very important as we get through this sermon. And the Lord said unto Moses, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee, but let not the priest and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. In other words, I'll kill them if they get up on the mountain. Now, this is the first or the second time when Moses is going down. We don't know because in verse 10, we don't know if he went down and come back up or if it's just alluding that this was going to be told when he got down. A lot of different commentaries, so they don't know if that's the first or the second. But that makes it either seventh time or eight time at the end of how many times that Moses go. I think only seven. But nevertheless, I think this is the first time that Moses is upon the mount, and he says to him, the next time you come up this mountain, bring Aaron with you. Well, if you'll read about Moses' next visit, you're going to find out that Aaron is not with him. And I want you to know that is very important of where we're going with this message. Keep that in the back of your mind. Now, when God commands you to do something, you better do it. There's a reason why God sets you up for blessing. And if you miss that opportunity, you're going to find out the repercussions later on in your life. Everybody here this morning, you're not here by coincidence or by chance. You're here by divine appointment. Thank God that you're here. But there are some people, there are some people that were cheated out of what God's wanting to do in this service because they're not here. And let me say this, that will never, ever, ever be revisited again. It's a lost opportunity. And what God wanted to do in their lives today is lost forever. Isn't that sad? Later we see that Aaron would go up with Moses along with Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. They get about three-fourths up the mountain and they're all excited and they're going up through there. And then all of a sudden God said, oh, this is for as Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders can go. Y'all stop right here. It is there that they get a vision of the Lord. But the Bible says that they can only worship God from a distance. But then God says, only you, Moses, climb up hither and come up close and worship me up close. Aaron had that opportunity the time before but didn't go. Aaron always had the idea is I got to get someone else to go with me. I want to tell you, if the other people wasn't in the mind of God for them to come along, you don't need to be bringing them along. Because when they started going up, God said, Aaron, last week you could have come to the very tip top, but today you can only go this far. Delayed obedience has costed you. Come on, this is serious stuff. Aaron had the opportunity to go where Moses went, see what Moses saw, experience what Moses experienced. God invited Aaron up on with Moses, but he refused. God help us. Let us also notice that Elijah, who was there on the Mount Transfiguration, also had a counterpart. Elijah had Elisha. Can I just get down and preach? We're going to be here too long if I don't. God had Elijah there, but Elijah had a counterpart, who was Elisha. Elisha had prayed and asked God and asked Elijah for a double portion of his spirit. What is it that you want? I want a double of what you've gotten. Elijah said, that's a hard thing. But nevertheless, if you see me when I go up, he had knowledge that he was going to be departing soon. If you see me when I go up, 
then you'll have what you ask. But if you don't see me when I go up, you're not going to have it. So Elijah begins to go on this mission trip to go down to his destiny to cross Jordan and meet with God to where God can take him out of the world. And he starts and he goes from Bethel to Gilgal, from Gilgal to Bethel and from Bethel down to Jordan. And he just starts going through all these different places. And at each stop, he'd look at Elisha and say, you tarry here, my brother, and let me, no, no, no. Wherever thou goest, and I'll go, and wherever thy soul livest, as long as your soul liveth, you'll have me tagging with you. In other words, my promise is I can't let you out of my sight. Because if I let you out of my sight and the Lord takes you at that moment, I'm going to miss out on my blessing. I want the blessing enough that I'm not leaving. I'm keeping my eyes upon my predecessor. Can I have an amen? I'm not taking my eyes off of my predecessor. If I'm going to be blessed, it's because I'm going to be consistent in seeking the predecessor that went before me. It's the parallel of the disciples and Jesus at his ascension. Jesus had done told them in the book of Luke chapter 24, verse 19, he said, go into the city of Jerusalem and, and you wait and you tear there until you be endued with power from on high. They get there, Acts chapter one, verse eight says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And the next verse says, and then all of a sudden a cloud came and received Jesus out of their sight, they saw him go away. And their eyes were fastened upon Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, we see another predecessor, John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. And what did he say? He said, I know him. How do you know him? Because behold, look at him. He's the one that takes away the sins of the world. What else happened? Right there when he was being baptized, Jesus being baptized by John, a spirit came down in the form of a dove and lit upon his shoulder and all of a sudden a cloud, out of that cloud came a loud voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was there to hear it. He was there to see it. He was there to experience it. The glory of God. But Peter, James, and John is there with Jesus upon the Mount Transfiguration. Oh, Lord, help me right here. And it's there that just for a moment, Peter is caught up with sensationalism. He's excited. Jesus appears before him, but he's not only intrigued that Jesus is there, he's intrigued that Elijah's there and, Mo, uh, and that Moses is there. And so what does he want to do? He wants to build three altars, and he wants to worship he wants to get caught up in idolatry just like the children of Israel. It made sense to me how the university, how these young kids were sitting there and all these other people were intrigued by all the other stuff that was being taught. And they got caught up in idolatry. What was it about Elijah? What do we see Elijah doing after the predecessor? You know what we see him doing? The double miracles that Elijah had done. A great prophet of God. What do we see out of Aaron who got misfocused and didn't go and meet his potential? You know what happened to him? He built a golden calf. Built a golden calf. This way said, well, um, Moses, you, you, you spent a lot of time up there. You've gone 40 days. We didn't know if you were going to come back or not. And the people needed a God, and they put pressure upon me, and, I, you know, start trying to blame the people, trying to put it on somebody else. And Moses sitting there staring at them, Betty, you're the leader. Well, well, you know, through much persuasion, they persuaded me to build a God, so I told them to give me their gold. And, you know, he's, he's stuttering around, and I made this calf, and, What's so wrong with that? And we worship and you wasn't, you wasn't coming back. And that's what happens with people that don't have no substance. When there's a long waiting period where God seems to be nothing, they fall apart. There's no, there's no sure footing. There's no solid rock. There's no solid foundation to their faith. Their faith is all in hype and emotion and experience. And yet when that's gone and when that's taken away, they don't have no standing power. And Aaron flunked. 
Why? Because he would not go to the place up on the mountain till he would ever get an experience that would forever change his life. Come on, somebody. But nevertheless, here they are. They're wanting to build, Peter's wanting to build these three altars. And all of a sudden, a cloud comes, a loud voice speaks out of it. They hit the ground face down as if they were dead. And the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. Don't hear any other voices. Don't listen to anybody else. It's Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they were afraid. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. And they lifted up their eyes and they seen no man except Jesus only. And God began to speak to me about this experience. And I got a lot more to preach, guys. I got page, I, 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 man, there's just so much in it. So much detail. But it comes down to this. It comes down to whether or not that the church's eyes are eternally fixed on one person and one person only, and that is Jesus Christ. Uh, your infatuation can't be in the pastor. And so I'm so good looking. I, I mean, I understand. It can't be in your Sunday school teacher. It can't be in your elder. Your focus, you got to know who he is. To know him is to keep his commandments. He that saith he knoweth me and keepeth not my commandments, he's a liar and the truth ain't in him. This is how that you know me, by the words that you keep from my commandments. Can I have an amen? And the thing that we got to understand is, is that what that generation needed at that university was a message of Jesus only. Come on. Jesus is the answer to our life's perplexities. So here I am standing before this people. I thought, what in the world is going on? What am I to do about it? God gave me that verse. When he came back off of that mount that second time before he got Aaron to go up with me, it says that God came down, he's gonna meet with the children of Israel on that third day. It says that he came down off of that mount and God came with Moses and there they declared the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. There they claimed the name of the Lord. And God spoke to me. And he showed me that little table that glowed. And he says, this is my remnant. There were thousands of people jabbing in there, but there was one table that had the goods. He said, this is my chosen, this is my remnant people right here. And God says, you know what I'm gonna do with them? I'm gonna descend. I'm coming down off of my mount. And I'm gonna come down, I'm gonna speak to that group of people. I'm gonna lead that group of people. And when they get done hearing my voice, they are gonna decree and declare the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, the question is, are we gonna be that table? The question is, are we gonna be that remnant? Are we going to be a bunch of flabbernites when we come here? We got so much mixed sin among our congregation that God can't move because there's so much doubt and there's so much unbelief and there's so much stuff and there's so much war in the heavenlies that the liberty of the Lord cannot take place because of the fact that people can't get in the bond of unity and in the bond of peace where Jesus Christ can rule and reign as Lord. I declare unto you this day by the authority of Jesus Christ 
that God the Father is coming off of his throne and he's descending with Jesus down to the earth again and he's gonna start pouring his spirit out upon the remnant people of God. You better get ready. Transitioning is happening. Transitioning is taking place. I want you to stand with me, please. I don't know if that makes you happy or not, but it makes me happy. Oh, Lord. You know what I love in the scriptures? I love that. Hebrews 12 and 1. Seeing then, uh-oh, the blessing comes by those that see. Seeing then that we got a great high priest. Pastor, you've seen him. You know him. I like what verse 2 says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. I love it where five, six different times he commands you to look for the second coming of the Lord in many different kinds of ways. And everybody says, oh, the coming of the Lord is something to where to look for. You know why? It is so that our looking toward him keeps our focus upon him, which keeps us ready. It ain't got nothing about the second coming. He's coming whether you're looking for him or not. And what the, while we look to him, is he's our central focal point. He's our foundation. He's our cornerstone. Everything about this church and its success is going to come through knowing Jesus Christ personally. I wished I would have said that in that dream, I started preaching and revival broke out and everybody got saved. That didn't happen. But I don't want a congregation every Sunday morning that God looks down and says, wow, what a mess. What a mess. Everybody doing their own things when they want to do it, but then they want to come and present themselves as if they're entering into holy worship with me. We need a remnant. I know in every church you're going to have some, and that's okay. That's how you win the lost. But the weeds came out perform the tares or we're in trouble or the tares can't outperform the wheat or we're in trouble we have to have our focus on Jesus we got to know him to know him is to love him to know him is to worship him to know him is proclaiming to know him is to take a stand for him and not be ashamed when you're at the party you don't have to act like you're drinking say no thank you I'm a Christian When someone takes a little weed and hands it to you, nah, thank you. I'm not into the drug scene. You don't have to beat up on them. Be a witness, be a light. When someone wants to get you caught up into social drinking, which is a big thing among Christians right now, tell them, nah, I don't get into the vices of the world. I don't get into things that dilute the mind, numb the mind. No, thank you, I don't drink. No, thank you. I don't want any part of alcohol. It destroys too many homes, too many lives. <laughs> Wine's a marker and strong drinks raging. He that's deceived by that is not wise. I want to be a wise man. I don't want to be deceived. I sure don't want to be mocked. Come on. Is it all right to preach like this or is it legalistic? We're living in an age when people have lost their bearings because they've lost the reality to true truth. Jesus. He is the way, the truth, not a truth. He's the truth. The only truth. He's the solid rock. He's the firm foundation. In the dream, I never knew if this conference actually was bad teaching or good teaching. I knew that there was one group that was bragging about the message and in the dream the message that I heard was solid. So I can't say that the university was a bad university. Most of them are. But I was amazed at the amount of people that went there for image sakes but not for substance sake. They went there because they wanted to be identified as a Christian, 
But they were there not to take anything in. How do I know? They leave a session and they're out there in a foyer or in a waiting tank, you know, on their break, doing the things that they were doing. I'm ready for true revival. I don't know about you. I'm so hungry. I'm about to bust. Come on, somebody. It's here for our taking. But do we want to be the remnant church? And this is what gets me. I love the two older ladies that was involved in this in this vision. Because I said, Lord, you showed me that they had a standard that was non-existing. And then the Lord said, yes. But I wanted to show you that there are still older people that have not retired spiritually. And they're still aggressive. And they're still seeking. They never got to the place that they thought they had it all. And they never got to the place they didn't think that they didn't need to change. They were still willing to seek the face of the Lord, even in their old age. Some of the biggest trends is the younger people want to get totally out here in left field, and the older people want to sit down as if I've arrived. All of us need experiences with God. God is saying to you what he said to Moses. God's saying, Kent, come up here this time. But this time, you can bring the congregation with you. You've heard from me. Now come back up again today. And when you do, bring the congregation with you. How many is willing to go with me? Will you come and seek the Lord? I know it's Sunday morning. This is a serious sermon. If we're going to change the culture, we got to seek the Lord. we got to have a fresh touch of God on our lives. we got to see Jesus and Jesus only. The distractions and the the flies and the apothecary have to get out of the way. And we have to see Jesus. Oh, Holy Spirit, you can deal wherever you're at. Oh, God, help us. Help us, Father. Ask God to touch your heart in a fresh way. Ask him to consecrate yourself, to worship you, to sanctify you, to set you apart, to make you bold, to help you declare the word of the Lord, help you make a stand. Not to be ashamed, not to be afraid. Not to cow down to the woke, not to cow down to the others, not to ignore sin as if it don't exist. But speak Jesus, preach Jesus. Spirit of burning rain, cover my soul. Cover my beating heart, truth that won't fade away, be here made known. So let earth and heaven start, one more can I say, let me draw near to you. One more can I say, let me draw near Won't you come, Lord? Jesus, won't you come, Lord? Jesus.
greatest lights you have is just your witness, your stamina, your strength, your persistence. And when they try to pull you into the circles of the things of the world, just in love, you say, no, thank you. You know what that'll turn into? That'll turn into an invitation eventually for you to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ because it won't be long. They'll be asking you, what's this about? It's at that point you've gained the influence to talk to them. And then you can talk to them. You don't have to beat them up with a club the first time they ask you to do something. No, I just don't do that, sorry. You don't have to say, but this is the reason why, and jump all over them. Just wait, and eventually they'll come to you. And they'll say, man, 
I need to talk to you. And they'll begin to inquire, and it's there that you'll be able to present to them Jesus Christ. Our world's going to hell in a handbasket, folks. Our universities are lost. Our colleges, they say by the time a Christian goes through two to three years of college, he's become a, literally an atheist. They strip them of their faith. They indoctrinate them with the things of the world. The things they once believed in, they don't even believe in anymore. You got kids in third and fourth grade going around talking about global warming as if they know exactly what, they don't even know what they're talking about in their third and fourth grade. And they're being indoctrinated about global warming. Telling mom and dad how wrong they are and they're, they're only in third grade. We're losing a generation, we're losing our generations over the unsound doctrines of the world. Can I have an amen? I love you. I hope you're not mad at me. Somebody says, well, you preached right at me today. Well, no one told me anything. So that's just God getting on to you. So straighten up. Amen. Just straighten up. I get tickled all the people accuse me of preaching to them. And I think, yeah, I sit at home and hear stories and say, I got to preach that to that person today. That ain't how it works. The Holy Spirit knows where you're at and he loves you enough to warn you. And if you love your children enough, if you love your people enough, you'll tell them as well. Jesus rules and reigns. God bless you. We'll see you tonight.